It's episode 302 of Monster Kid Radio, and we are kicking off this episode with the song Cachito. It is from the band Los Tsunamis. They're a surf band out of Ubera that's over in Spain, and the album is called California. You can find them at lostsunamis.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website. This is the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, and you are some of the best podcast listeners in the world. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook. I'm excited to have you here to talk about Carnival of Souls with my longtime friend, longtime podcast participant, Rich Chamberlain. Rich was once known as Richard from Wichita. These days, he is Rich, the monster movie kid, and a few other things as well. He actually just launched a podcast with another Monster Kid Radio listener by the name of Jeff Owens. He's also the man behind Kansas City Cinephile. going to talk about that here in a little bit. Before we get to all of that, though, I want to go over a piece of feedback. A voicemail that came in from listener Don Falcos. Hello, Derek. This is Don Falcos from Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks to you and Scott Morris, I've been on a Planet of the Apes binge for the last few weeks, during which time I've watched everything. I started, of course, with the first film series and watched all five films. The the first one is uh, by far the best, but I also really like Escape. The other three, well, they're not all that great, but I still enjoy watching them. Then came the... TV series, which was actually better than I remembered it, followed by the animated series, which was just as bad as I remembered it. (laughs) There are a couple of episodes that are quite good, but the rest are pretty bad. Still, of course, I had to watch the whole series. I then watched the 2001 Travesty, Now, to be fair, it is an excellent production, brilliant acting by much of the cast, including one of my favorite actors, Tim Roth. And it's even a halfway decent science fiction film, but it's just not a good Planet of the Apes movie. And I finished everything off by watching the two reboot films, which I'm not sure how other Planet of the Apes fans feel about them, but I really like them. So anyway, thanks for the inspiration. It's been an enjoyable couple of weeks. Congratulations on over 300 episodes. I've been with you since the beginning, and it's been a fun ride. Keep up the good work. Don, thank you for sending that in. Listeners, Don used to contribute to 1951 Down Place back when Scott, Casey, and I were doing that show. And no, we haven't completely pulled the plug on that. That might come back in the future. Stay tuned. But Don used to contribute to that. He's also the man behind the Two Minute Bible podcast. And apparently he's a big Planet of the Apes fan. So thank you for sending that in. I agree with you. The first couple of films are the best. I do like the others, just not as much. I'm fascinated by the entire trajectory of the entire series. And like I was telling Scott, like I told you guys and gals, it seems like the Planet of the Apes coverage really resonated with everybody, and I can't wait to get into the TV series. Now, Scott and I did talk a little bit about how we're going to handle viewing the TV series. I think what he and I are going to do is we're going to watch the entire season on our own, slowly make our way through it, and then maybe come back together and talk about our favorite two or three episodes. Tentatively. That might happen. It will happen sometime this year. 
course, Scott and I have the car coming up and a few other things in the works as well. Of course, there's going to be the Planet of the Apes roundtables, plural, because so many people are going to be involved, so I have to do it more than once, which is awesome. I can't wait to do that. That's coming later this year as well. As far as the animated series goes, at one point, when Scott and I were planning this whole thing, we were going to do all the original films, the TV series, the animated series, the Tim Burton film, and then the current franchise. I don't think we're going to get to the Tim Burton film or the current franchise. I've seen the Tim Burton film. Eh. I have seen the first of the new cycle. Mm, better than uh. But yeah, I'm, I'm straight up OG. <laughs> original uh, Planet of the Apes. There's that O-P? O-P-O-T-A? Anyway, I like the original stuff. So thank you for sending that in, Don, and thanks for your congratulations. You know, I said it at the top of the show. I say it all over Facebook. I've said it before. Monster Kid Radio listeners are the best. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being along for the ride and joining me either from episode one or just now joining the show for the first time. You guys and gals make it worth it. I'm proud to be a Monster Kid and I'm proud to be a podcaster because of what you guys and gals give me in return. Like that feedback, like the likes on Facebook or the reviews on iTunes. Just the emails and the voicemails. Just knowing that you guys and gals are out there just makes it worth it for me. So thank you. Okay, before we get to Rich, one more thing. I want to kind of get ahead of this. The past couple of episodes in which I had a guest, and I think it became most evident during Larry Underwood's appearance and then Dave Schechter's appearance, there are some sound issues, and that also happened in this recording with Rich as well. I I want to own it. Uh, I had an issue with the microphone. Now, I think I've corrected it, and starting with the next episode, you shouldn't hear it anymore. I actually am kind of experimenting with my recording setup, so when I record this weekend with some people, we'll try something new and see if it sounds even better. I think the content's great because everybody that I have come on the show always brings their A-plus game, and Rich Chamberlain is no exception. did a great job talking to me about Carnival of Souls and a handful of other things. We're going to get to all of that right after this. Oh, and just so you know, Rich and I, we kind of spoil the big twist of Carnival of Souls. You've been warned. Discover Planet of the Apes. where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. final disposition. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Then a kind of living death.
comic book fans, I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. She is Erin Gray. Erin, welcome to the show. I ended up being a contract player making, I think it was $600 a week. Gil was doing great. He was making the big bucks. You got the posters, though. You got <laughs> yes. the posters. Come I on. look better in white spandex. What can I say? Hey, this is Michael Rosenbaum. Lex Luthor from Smallville. Make sure you listen to this guy's show. Sounds like a good guy. People should listen to you, Joe. Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, and be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is Dean Kane, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book... Comic Book... Comic Book Central where comic books come to life. Excelsior! I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by The Tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from The Tingler? I play Debbie in Monos, the Hands of Fate, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. It's something that he and I have been talking about doing here for a while, and finally it's happening. I'd like to welcome back to Monster Kid Radio the newest writer for the website, Boom Howdy, but he's always going to be, to me, the Monster Movie Kid. Rich Chamberlain, welcome back, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, It's been a long time coming, but it's always good to talk to you. We've been talking about doing this film for quite some time, but we knew it was coming out on Criterion. We knew they were going to be putting out a nice edition. We wanted to hold off, give people a chance to see the Blu-ray themselves before we dive into Carnival of Souls. And wow. That Blu-ray is amazing. It really is. Hey, you want to die, huh? Rev it up. Action you've never seen. Races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture-making. Carnival of Souls.
this is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. But try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the carnival of souls. She is a girl-driven man by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. Honey. You don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the carnival of souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. Carnival of Souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Carnival of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. Uh, this film is kind of near and dear to my heart because I live in Shawnee, Kansas, which is about 30 minutes away from Lawrence, Kansas, which of course is where this film was partially filmed and was the home to Centron Films. So, uh, I mean, it's it's got a, a rich history here in Kansas and and uh, nice to have this nice Criterion Blu-ray because for so many years, I mean, this was a public domain film. There were various copies of it out there that, you know, had various degrees of of quality. And now we're getting a, a film that last time I had seen it was a, it was a public domain copy. So this print is just amazing. It looks fantastic. Criterion is known for doing amazing work anyway. And they were going to do Carnival of Souls when that news came out. I was stoked. I was just thrilled because... Like you said, there are so many different copies of this out there, public domain, streaming, YouTube, archive.org. You know, you, you take what you can get. You know, as Monster Kids, as fans of some of these films, we take what we can get. But to know that Criterion was going to pay some special attention and make this amazing Blu-ray available, I believe they did it on DVD earlier, didn't they? They did. They did. You know, I'm sure that the quality of this one is, is an upgrade from the DVD, and I don't know as far as the extras you know, how much differ uh, between the, the DVD and Blu-ray versions. Considering this film is, is essentially is a low-budget indie 1962 horror flick, to be getting a Criterion release is amazing. Uh, the first thing I thought of when I heard that they were doing this was the other film that I've talked about with you and other podcasts before, The Beast in the Beginning of Time. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of difference in in the start of the film. I mean, Beast from the Beginning of Time is made in '65, low budget film using local talent. The difference being is that when the Beast from the Beginning of Time was made, it disappeared, and it truly disappeared. And Carnival of Souls, which is clearly a better film than Beast from the Beginning of Time, which I think is the reason why it survived the test of time because it started getting played in European art houses. 
um, in the 1980s. And that's where the film kind of resurfaced. You're not going to see Beast in the beginning of time being played in a European art house. Um, <laughs> and, and so that's, that's where Carnival of Souls was able to rise from the ashes where a film like Beast in the beginning of time didn't. But the starting point for both of these films, essentially the same. Small little film made in Kansas by local filmmakers, virtually forgotten once the film is made. And it kind of, it was just by luck of chance that, you know, these films that Carnival of Souls resurfaced because of someone somewhere saying, hey, this is kind of a, a unique film. Let's play and see what happens. And then it just kind of domino effect snowball from there. You've mentioned it a couple times. I don't think we've ever talked about it proper on Monster Kid Radio, but just quickly, Beast from the Beginning of Time was a local production as well. Around the same time, it was produced primarily, or the cast, and, I'm sorry, not the cast, but the crew primarily came from like the local news and, and journalism, right? It was technical side of thing, not necessarily fiction type filmmaking. Am I right? Yeah, local that? sportscaster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Probably the two biggest people in that production. You've got uh, Henry Harvey, who um, was local celebrity, had done a lot of like local kiddie shows. He played like a, a deputy kid show host character. He was known for Freddie Fudd in the 1970s. He was <laughs> the, the brother to Elmer Fudd, and he would introduce the Bugs Bunny cartoons. Uh, he had a treehouse, and uh, for for decades, Henry Harvey was Santa Claus. Every day after Thanksgiving, all the way up through Christmas Eve, he was Santa Claus on Santa's Toy Shop. And uh, he had a little puppet sidekick named, uh, well, it was Cake Man when he was on the, the Channel 10 KKE affiliate, and then they switched networks and he became Toy Boy. And it was a staple for Wichita that continued on into the 1990s. And believe it or not, I just saw this about two weeks ago. We've got a TV station in Kansas City that is going to be playing this this show. There's a season's worth of shows that they did in the 1980s that survived. Obviously, those shows, everyone threw them away, right? When As soon as the recording and the season was done. But, uh, you know, clips and stuff have, have it still exist. But there was a season's worth of shows that still exist of Santa's Toy Shop with Henry Harvey as Santa that is being played on the Kansas City station this year. And it, again, Santa was known in Wichita, not in Kansas City. But there's enough people that have that live now in Kansas City that are, have heard of it. And then, of course, you've got Tom Leahy, who was the writer, producer, director, and star of the film, was also a local celebrity. He was Major Astro, another kiddie show host. And, of course, he was the host. He was one of the original um, you know, local horror hosts. In 1958, he had the shock theater package on his show Nightmare. And he played the host on into the 60s and 70s and revived it again in the 1990s. But this is a film that, once it was made in 65... You know, it was just virtually forgotten for 15 years. It was playing on television in 1980 as a joke because, of course, you still had people working at the TV station. Someone found this film sitting on a shelf and, hey, let's play it. And they got everybody back together again to do a an interview segment at the beginning. And uh, Tom Leahy even played the host uh, to introduce the film. And I discovered it or rediscovered it because I saw it in 1980. I rediscovered it in 2005 when the film was celebrating its 40th anniversary and finally had its film premiere at the uh, Wichita Orpheum Theater. And at that time, Tom was embarrassed. Still, he was embarrassed by the film. He was there along with his uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dick Wellsbacher, who was a professor at Wichita State University in the uh, the arts department. And uh, 
the two gentlemen, you know, were kind of ashamed of this little horror film. And Tom just didn't understand that there is a whole group of monster kids out there salivating to see something from, you know, forgotten from the past. He didn't understand that there was a, there was this whole audience out there for it. And that's sadly the film to date still hasn't been released and probably never will. Now, uh, Tom has passed and everyone involved in the project has passed. Dick Wellsbacher just passed uh, away sometime in the last, I think year, year and a half, who was kind of like, I think the last connection to that film. And uh, the family essentially turned everything over to the Kansas Historical Society. And that's kind of where it sits. It's a, most likely a public domain film. I suppose you could probably release it. But for me, considering that Tom Leahy's wishes were that the movie kind of be buried, I kind of, for me personally, would say, you know, let's honor his wishes and not release it. But it certainly could be released and could, you know, could certainly stand up with other films of the time. It's not that bad of a film. And and when you consider Carnival of Souls kind of had the same beginnings, even though it was a much better film, Carnival of Souls easily could have been forgotten as well. I mean, it, it wouldn't have had that resurgence if it wasn't for the uh, the art house showings in the 80s to get people to to remember this film that up to that point maybe would pop up somewhere on a late night showing. But it, other than that, it was kind of a blip on the radar of, uh, of films. There was a book that was released called The uh, 50 Grand Movies of the 1960s and 70s by David Zinman. And he highlighted this movie in there. And I think that book probably brought some attention to the movie as, as well, uh, mentioning a film, again, that probably most people hadn't heard of. When was the first time you stumbled across it? Was it through a television screening? Or? I want to say I discovered it probably in the 1990s sometime. And I think it was, uh, I don't think it was on TV. I think, uh, I think it was probably, gosh, I want to say it was after, well, probably late 90s. I think it was a cheap DVD release. It was like, hey, this is a film I hadn't seen, hadn't heard of, plugged it in, and and it was just very different. It had a feel of a low-budget film, but then other elements of it, there was clearly a lot more thought that went into this low-budget production than your average, let's make a film theory, you know, let's get a camera and some people together. There was definitely a lot more attention to this film than would have been given any other low-budget film, and that's kind of what immediately you know drew me to it. And of course, as the years have progressed, I've learned so much more about the production of it and what went into it. But I'd say, yeah, maybe late '90s, just a random DVD pickup. I think that's how what I first. You? Well, okay, so a couple of years ago, I realized I had never seen it, which is ridiculous considering how much I love this movie, I was confusing it with something else in my head. And to this day, I cannot remember what the other movie was that I thought was Carnival of Souls. But when I finally saw it, I was just blown away. I was like, I, why did I wait so long to confirm whether or not I'd seen this movie before? And oh my, it is just a solid movie. It is so weird, like you said, in different, in the music. I mean, it just sets it apart. Just that, that creepy organ score through the entire thing gives it this tone, the sense of unreality, but it's so interesting. I mean, it's good, but it's also interesting. And the way it kind of wraps around at the end and that ending, it's just fantastic. It is. You know, as I was watching some of the documentaries um, on this set, that was uh, some great documentaries and uh, extra features that were even giving me more information about the kind of behind the scenes and, and some kind of thought that went into it 
there's certain elements of this film that upon first viewing will probably skim right over the average viewer. Um, and there's like certain comparisons to like Psycho and uh, the Hitchhiker episode of The Twilight Zone, but the the scenes of uh, Mary Henry, the main character, you know, her driving in the desert and the isolation, things like that, that you have to wonder, was the director, uh, Herc Harvey, and the writer, John Clifford, I mean, were they influenced by The Twilight Zone in particular? Because The Twilight Zone episode, you know, was done before the, you know, before the movie, trying to, to remember uh, 1960. That Hitchhiker episode was two years before, uh, and there's a lot of similar elements to that. Psycho came out also two years before. Now, I would think Psycho might have been easier to get a hold of a copy of Psycho you know, prior to writing or, or making this film than it would have been a copy of The Twilight Zone. Sure. But then again, you know, I, I don't know. And none of the interviews that I've seen, was there any reference from either one of them there upon their influences as far as were they truly influenced by that? It's, but it, other than maybe film comparisons now, people see this and like, well, the scene of, of Mary Henry as she's driving in the desert in Utah, comparisons to, you know, the main character from, you know, gently from Psycho or the character from the, the Hitchhiker episode, you know, and, and certain things where she was kept seeing the Hitchhiker, whereas Mary Henry keeps seeing the dead man pop up. I think just elevate the movie because you immediately see that there's some thought, whether maybe it was unintentional or intentional. There's definitely comparisons to some, when you're talking Twilight Zone and Psycho, those are classic pieces of work. And you made a film that clearly was influenced, maybe again, indirectly or unintentionally, but there's certain comparisons that elevates the film above your average low budget 1962 release. I would agree. There is a, a, a I, you mentioned Twilight Zone, and I couldn't help but think there's a lot of similarities here, and it fits right in to that, to that vibe, that aesthetic. And it's interesting that, you know, again, this movie came from people who weren't necessarily fictional filmmakers. Industrial films, sure. But to make a feature-length fiction film and to look around and, and maybe find influences in things like Psycho, in things like, you know, to find that kind of influence and that touchstone and then make this movie, it's kind of brilliant filmmaking. It, it really it is. is. The, the way it was shot, the way it was acted, the way it was put together, even the writing is solid. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's interesting, you know, when when you look at a film that really is such a solid film, they never really did anything. You know, again, in, in the genre, when you've got, you know, John Clifford, you know, did such a, an amazing film. But the thing is, you got to remember, the film didn't get recognized in the 1960s. And so it, it just it didn't get noticed for whatever reason. You know, it, it had mixed reviews when, when it came out locally. And, you know, that, that opportunity uh, to do something like that again wasn't there. And so they continued doing their, their films for, for Centron Films and, and had a very successful career doing that. Uh, and then life just kind of kept going on. And it wasn't until really, you know, I think 1989, when they had a uh, one of the documentaries on the on the DVD has the reunion that they all got together in '89, which, you know, 27 years later, that that the movie was just now being recognized as a, as really a great piece of work. That's you know, by that time, you know, their their careers had certainly were over in the sense that you know Hollywood had kind of left them behind. 
but they have that one piece, that one film, and it should have led to bigger and better things. Unfortunately, it didn't just because it wasn't noticed at the time. I think about this film and I think about another very, very important film in the horror genre that had similar roots, a group of people who were making industrial movies who eventually wanted to go and make a fiction film and they decided to make a horror movie and their careers went a completely different way. And I'm talking about Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. And there's a lot of, of similarities mm-hmm. uh, between this film and Night of the Living Dead stuff that I, again, I didn't pick up on the first viewing, but when you see this film several times, you know, I start thinking there are certain things that, you know, certain similarities and, and uh, the way that the dead are, are filmed this way uh, in, the, in the movie in certain scenes that one wonders, was George Romero in any way, did he see Carnival of Souls? I don't know if he's ever acknowledged that or not in an interview. Are you, are you aware of that? You know, I'm really not. And you know, I see it in front of the camera and then I also see it behind the camera the way these, I mean, Romero and company, the, the latent image and all that, they were industrial filming. They were making commercials. They, they were a commercial production company. They were not making fiction films. So I see the similarities here. Whether or not they actually saw Carnival of Souls, I don't know. Uh, I would have to go back and do some research that somebody else has probably already done for me uh, somewhere out there. But yeah, I don't know. But the way the dead, the way the the man enters the film and the way zombie number one, Bill Heisman, enters the film in Night of the Living Dead, very interesting uh, reflections of each other, the way they were done. Oh, yeah. A lot of strong similarities. And, and I guess, you know, the, the chances most likely George Romero wasn't aware of Carnival of Souls again, because the movie just was kind of a blip. It was here, it was gone. But it's possible. It's possible that he might have seen it. You know, Carnival of Souls did get a wide release, but it was on a double bill, and it was paired up with The Devil's Messenger. Lon Chaney film. Yeah, exactly, which is not a good film. I mean, it's it's an odd little film. Lon Chaney Jr. did a television series called 13 Demon Street. And certainly by 1960s, Lon Chaney Jr.'s, you know, heyday was gone and he was, you know, an alcoholic at this point. And I've actually, I mean, I've seen most of that series and it's an anthology series along the lines of a, the Twilight Zone thriller, what have you, that suffers from some, some very low budgets, uh, some, some bad acting. Okay, uh, some. You, you said you've seen most of 13 Demon Street. My understanding is that a lot of it was lost. There, there's actually stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah, oh. yeah. There's, I've, I've got a, I've got a DVD set actually that has. I want to say, I want to say it had. I think most of the, most of the series was on oh. there. It's got subtitles actually, and I want to, I want to say it's like Swedish subtitles or something. It's like some bizarre. But yeah, no, they've actually found most of the episodes of Thirteen Demon Street. It was produced in Sweden, so that would make sense with the subtitles. Well, that's fascinating. You and I are going to have to talk after this about after the recording. <laughs> I need to get my hands on some of that. You know, it's, it's like I said, it's not a, a great series per se, in, in that again, it suffers from from low budget and what have you, and the scripts are very hit and miss. So Devil's Messenger, of course, is compiled from that. They they take several segments and piece it together. And I think a few new segments were recorded to to do the wraparound for it. Mm-hmm. But as a movie, I mean, it's it's not a great anthology movie. And when you're paired up with Carnival of Souls, two very different films. And so obviously, I think it was as a double feature. It was it really shouldn't have been paired with something like, you know, <laughs> Devil's a Messenger. I mean, it been more maybe would have made more sense to to pair it up. Although you know, it wouldn't have been made sense in one perspective. But with a film like maybe like Repulsion, that mm. had 
a lot of imagery and a lot of, of thought that went into it. Something like that would have made more sense for sure. it to be paired up with. So, I mean, there's a chance, again, that George Romero might have seen it, but probably a better chance that he didn't. And it may just be, this could be coincidence that there's a lot of similarities. I don't know. It'd be interesting yeah. to to know has he seen Carnival of Soul Sense? Probably has. You know, did he recognize that there were some comparisons and was it just, you know, happenstance? Was it just coincidence or was there some type of influence? Uh, be interesting to know that. To go back to The Devil's Messenger, <laughs> I was going to try to give listeners an idea as to what The Devil's Messenger is about, but I'm just going to read this one sentence from Wikipedia. Okay. This horror film also follows Satan's plan to blow up the planet with a nuclear bomb. So this film <laughs> was paired with Carnal of Souls. Uh, what a weird mix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, is that, have you seen Devil's Messenger? I have. And uh, I mean, I love Lon Chaney. I, I really do. But it's not one of my favorite Lon Chaney films. I'll just say that. No, and 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 the wraparound. I mean, with the whole "I'm going to blow up" thing. That was. It's so. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's a weak wraparound. You know, it's 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 just as a way to incorporate the varying episodes. You know, into this this makeshift theatrical film. And, and actually, it's interesting because in The Devil's Messenger, Chaney essentially plays Satan, but. And the TV series, he's not Satan. He's a mysterious figure, but he's never I really identified as Satan, whereas in Devil's Messenger, he clearly is Satan. So that was that was something that they did change from the Devil's Messenger to Thirteen Demon Street to go ahead and, and I guess enhance Cheney's character. It didn't really again, I may I guess it for the, the movie it made more sense. But yeah, in Thirteen <laughs> Demon Street he's not he's not Satan. He's just a mysterious figure who uh, has like a dilapidated home and is just kind of serves as the narrator of sorts, the kind of the Rod Serling-esque to introduce, you know, whatever story they were doing that week. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine sitting down to watch those two movies back to back. And just, I cannot think of, I don't know, a more dissonant difference between the movies and a double feature. I know huh. sometimes like they would pair uh, like a Godzilla movie with Night of the Big Heat. Or, or something like that, but, or I'm, or, or I'll live with whatever. Just, they just don't <laughs> seem to mesh. Carnival of Souls on that double feature is definitely the better of the two films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So again, not a surprise. And actually, I think, you know, 13 Demons or the uh, Devil's Messenger, because it had Lon Chaney Jr., was considered the A film of that double feature, right? Because this got Lon Chaney Jr. in it. No one knew who starred in Carnival of Souls. And so Carnival of Souls was kind of the considered the secondary film. So if anybody went to go see that double feature, their their mind was probably blown. It was like how different those films were. And it was a very odd pairing. And probably, I would suspect, had a very short run in theaters, and which is why it was essentially forgotten, you know, until, uh, well, I think it was the early 80s that uh, Cinefantique, uh, Cinef- I can't even say it, the Cinefantique magazine. Cinefantastique. Thank you. Thank you. I used to subscribe. They did an article on Carnival of Souls. And and I think that kind of helped with the partial revival of getting it probably recognized and having some TV stations find some copies of the film and contributed to what was the eventual revival and reunion of everyone in 89 compared as well, paired up with the uh, European art house films. Uh, One of the specials on the Blu-ray, director Herc Harvey, 
was pleased that the movie was being shown in our houses because he said that's really where it should have been shown in the 60s. That was kind of his grand vision for the film, certainly, was to to have it recognized that way. And I think uh, had it been had it been marketed that way, the movie, I think the history of the film would be vastly different than what it is now. I think it would have would have gotten recognized a lot sooner by horror movie fans as compared to now or even now. People are still discovering this film, which is, you know, in some ways it's kind of on the fringe of the list of horror films because – Again, there's nobody immediately recognizable. If you're going to start discovering classic horror films, people are going to be naturally drawn to Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, Lon Chaney Jr., Vincent Price, Peter Cushing. You're going to work your way through all that catalog, and then you're going to start to discover some of these other films out there. And you're going to be drawn to people that you might recognize, you know, whether it's a director, writer, actor. And then eventually you'll work your way down to Carnival of Souls, which doesn't have anybody in it, cast, writer, director, anything that is going to be recognizable by anybody. But once you see the movie, you discover that this is like a hidden gem. This is something that should be discovered by more people. It just sometimes gets lost in the shuffle a little bit because it doesn't have that name recognition anywhere attached to it. It doesn't have the name and it doesn't have the same vibe. You you mentioned him wanting to have it shown in art houses and he's right. This is exactly where the movie like this should end up. It's not a quote unquote monster movie. It doesn't have the Karloff or the fun of the universal monster mashups or anything like that. It is an odd film. It's weird. I mean, weird in terms of like weird fiction, weird tales. It has this kind of weird vibe to it that does kind of set it aside. From the traditional, you know, horror films or genre films of even the sixties where things were kind of starting to get a little wonky. It's still its own thing and it is fantastic. I mean, the, the cast not known for, well, really doing anything. The, the main lead, she did a lot of theater. She appeared in one other movie. Yeah. Yeah. Candace Hilligot, her character, Mary, Mary Henry, Curse of the Living Corpse was another big claim to fame in the horror community. Uh, a film with Roy Scheider that, uh, that was his first film, seen. wasn't it? It was his first movie, wasn't it? I, I believe so. Yeah. Have yeah. you seen that? I think I have. It's forgettable. I mean, it's not a. <laughs> it's not a classic per se. It's one of those films where you add it to your list, you check it off, mm-hmm. and you probably won't go back and revisit it. But you're glad to say you saw it because hey, it had Roy Scheider in it, and we just love to see anything that's that's anywhere close to the genre that we love. And even the the worst film usually has some redeeming quality along the way, but uh, it's not a bad, it's not horrible, it's just forgettable. Well, it's Del Tenney, and I like Del Tenney quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, some of the other people, I mean, actually, uh, Sidney Berger played John Linden. He was the neighbor across the hall, the the creepy neighbor. Um, oh, really creepy. <laughs> it's uh, He did have one other film role, and really isn't worth anything more than a mention here, but were you familiar that they did a, a remake of Carnival of Souls in 98? I was, and uh, I've never seen it. I heard it was awful. Have you? Yeah, Wes Craven's name is attached to it. I haven't seen it. I have no desire to see it because it's, yeah, no one's said anything decent about it. And from what I understand, it's it's a kind of a remake in name only. There's the basic idea is intact and the twist ending is intact, but everything else is, uh, is different. Okay. Um, he actually, he actually plays a cop in that movie. So I think they probably just got him in to do a token appearance 
and put a little blurb out, hey, you know, Sidney Berger from the original Carnival of Souls is back in the remake. Candace Hillegoss would still have been alive, and I'm fairly certain she wouldn't have been interested in doing the movie. So Sidney Berger is a teacher, I believe. Uh, at least he was probably at about that time. One of the documentaries, which was from 1989, indicated that he was a teacher. Oh, jeez. Well, some of the reviews coming out, of course, commenting about how he played this little creepy character. I can't remember the line that they used, one of the reviewers, but he had his his kids in his class apparently had fun with that, you know, because he, he oh, was yeah. he was a very smarmy, creepy guy that uh, I can't imagine. <laughs> even even Mary Henry's character is obviously in a, in, a, in a distressed state in this movie. I mean, she's like going back and forth from from being you know at least partially sane to being on the fringe of of a nervous breakdown. Why she would even want to go have a drink with this guy is beyond me. He just yeah. He looked the part of being somebody that needs to be on a on a watch list. I was about so. to say that if this movie was made today, you know, he's on a registry somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think you know. I think that which which adds to the to the art house feel to this film is that you've got these people that you don't. You don't see them in any other film, really. Actually, you know, some of the supporting cast actually did a couple of other films, but they're not recognizable. Dan Levitt, everyone knows Stan Levitt, right? No, nobody knows him. He played Dr. Samuels. He actually was in uh, a film that is well-known, classic film, In Cold Blood. He played an insurance salesman in that film. And now he apparently, Stan, is apparently in Kansas, naturally. And so In Cold Blood was a film based in Kansas, written by Truman Capote, the book, was partially shot in Kansas, which is why they used him. He was this local talent, and so he plays an insurance salesman in that movie. The Minister, who also had his fair share of creep qualities to him, was played by Art Ellison. He was actually in other films made in Kansas, including Paper Moon, the uh, classic film from the, uh, the 1970s. Some of these people in the background actually did pop up as supporting characters in other films, if the movie was made in, in Kansas. And, and, we've, and there are some films that were partially shot in Kansas over the years. We're not a uh, a hubbub of Hollywood activity, but some films have been made over the years, and so some of these background characters did actually pop up in some other films. But because none of these people are recognizable, it adds to the otherworldly feel uh, of this film. Sometimes some of the bad acting actually enhances this otherworldly feel unintentional. I don't think that that was something that her Carby thought of when he was making this movie. It just kind of came across that way. Some of these people, some of their wooden performances or some of their goofy performances, you know, the context of the film, because these, these people don't seem normal. None of them seem normal. There's not one character in here that really wouldn't give you at least a little odd vibe one way or the other. Uh, the minister, for example, just when he, discovers her playing, you know, other than church music on the organ, has this little fit <laughs> and, and starts screaming profane. And, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, soul. And, and it just goes off on, on the fact that she was playing something else and immediately like fires her from her position. And she's like wandering off in a daze. He says, but I'm not giving up on you. There's still a place for you in the church. We'll pray for you. But, you know, it's bizarre scenery and bizarre characters like that are, are seen really throughout the film that, you know, like the landlady of the, of the house is just, she's her own little odd little character as well, which hindsight, when you get to the twist of the film, all of this makes sense. But again, I think a lot of this wasn't intentional 
Uh, I think some of it was simply because you've got some some people who weren't necessarily the best actors and some of their bad acting was coming through, but it actually ends up enhancing the film. It does. It gives it, that, again, that weird quality, that otherworldly quality that just or, or that European art house quality that you don't get from other films from this era, the uh, genre films of this era from before or even after. All these parts kind of create this odd experience, this enjoyably odd experience when you watch the movie and when you understand the twist and see what's going Well, can you really understand the twist? But when you get to the twist and you start thinking about, well, what does that really mean? And is she really... Then it just it adds even more to it and enhances it. Uh, you mentioned Candace Hilligas. I wanted to just talk briefly about her. I haven't read her memoir yet. I keep meaning to, because from what I understand, she did have a kind of a rough time of it with a husband who tried to convince the judge that she was never really an actor and that she was kind of imagining things this whole time. And it just seems like a really interesting, unfortunately depressing story. I'd like to read more about that. Uh, the, oh, yeah, I did not know that. The, the memoir is called The Odyssey and the Idiocy, A Marriage to an Actor. So I'd like to read that. My understanding is that she at one point either was involved in writing or wanted to do a sequel to Carnival of Souls. The producers decided, nah, we're going to go this other way anyway. And then that's when the Wes Craven thing came about. Are you familiar with any of that? I know that writer John Clifford, I'm very proud of this, had said that he had been approached you know, various times over the years to write a, a sequel. It didn't seem like he was ever really interested. It kind of felt like he, he, he I wrote this, I did it, I'm proud of it. But I want to do something else. And I think he was perhaps a little put off by the fact that no one ever came to him saying, hey, can you write something else? It seemed like they always wanted to do a, a sequel to Carnival of Souls or, or somehow. And in that he wasn't really interested in that. He wanted to, to try his hand at something else. Yeah, there's a great documentary. We should, because a lot of the great information that I, that I got and came from this documentary mm-hmm. was made in 89. And it was called the, uh, the film that wouldn't die. And it was made by Channel 11, uh, KTWU, which is the PBS affiliate in Topeka. And giving some geography for the area, you know, I live in Shawnee, which is the far western edge of the Kansas City metro area. And I'm 30 minutes away from, from Lawrence. Lawrence is about the halfway point between Kansas City and Topeka. Uh, there's obviously a connection, you know, between, you know, Topeka and Lawrence and Kansas City. Topeka is about an hour away from where I live. Uh, and there's been a couple of interesting, uh, documentaries made over the years. There was a recent one made by, uh, Channel 19 KCPT, which is the PBS affiliate in Kansas City, which, uh, actually really didn't give much more new information and actually pulled some information from this 89 documentary. So I was glad to see that they incorporated that as part of their extras. I actually discovered this documentary two years ago. They were giving away free copies of this documentary during the Halloween season at Vintage Stock in Topeka. I just happened to wander in there and it's free, you know, here, happy Halloween. And it had the documentary and a free copy of Carnival of Souls. It was the alpha video version of Carnival of Souls. But, yeah, absolutely free. They were just giving them out to anybody. You didn't have to even make a purchase. Huh. So when, when this documentary popped up on, on here, I'm so glad they included that because there was a lot of great interviews that we can't have anymore because it, they interview her Carvey and John Clifford. You know, Herc Harvey, the director, the writer, John Clifford, both of whom have died. Herc Harvey passed away in 96. John Clifford passed away in 2010. Uh, they had great interviews with um, Sidney Berger and Candace Hillegoss. There was a big reunion that took place in Lawrence in 1989. 
recognizing the the film. The film was played at the uh, the Granada Theater, uh, which is uh, I believe it's uh, on Mass Street, uh, Massachusetts Street, which is kind of a hubbub of activity in Lawrence. Uh, the theater is still there today. Uh, I don't think they play movies. I think they do other shows there, but it's it's still there. And uh, in you know in '89 they brought everybody back together and had this big reunion thing. And so there's one of the interviews, of course, has John Clifford talking about how he wanted to do other things. And Herc Harvey gave him this idea. John Clifford wrote it and said, here you go. And then Herc Harvey worked around the script and made everything work. So they clearly had a, uh, you know, a good partnership going. Of course, they did work with Centron Films. So they had a camaraderie between the two. And again, kind of going back to what I said, it's odd that they never did another film, you know, that they, they never pursued that because they obviously had, you know, a working relationship that created something incredible. And there was clearly a passion there to do something else, but never really had the opportunity. And while they're proud of their Carnival of Souls work, John Clifford clearly wanted to to move beyond that and do something else. And he just never had that opportunity. It is a shame. Uh, it would have been nice to see them do more, whether it was in the genre or not. It doesn't, you know, like to see more. Unfortunately, all we've really got are the Centron films, the industrial movies. And some of those do appear. I don't think all of them do, but some of them do appear on that criterion. A Blu-ray release. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, yeah they, they did like over 400 films. Yeah. Their library is extensive. They mentioned uh, Coronet Films, which was, uh, you know, back in the 50s, they call them industrial films, educational films, what have you. They were commonplace, 50s, 60s, and on into the 70s. I was born in 67. I remember the days, you know, of, of being in grade school and, and middle school in the 70s and, and uh when they brought out the film projector and were showing a film, this was exciting times. You know, it was like, hey, we, we get to watch something going on here in the in the classroom. You know, of course, now today, just, they pull down the TV screen and, and, you know, here we go. They just pop out a video. There's no sense of wonder to it. But back then, these educational films, which are incredibly corny by today's standards, this was amazing. When you're sitting in a classroom getting a chance to watch a film, and and some of these films are just, you know, Atlantis by today's standards is like classroom etiquette and the etiquette in the lunchroom and <laughs> so many of these bizarre films. With with Centron, they 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 were making these types of films, but they made a better film. Coronet was just kind of cranking out low quality, whereas Centron, again, not surprising when you had people like Herc Harvey and and John Clifford involved. They were certainly you know the people with Centron films were making a, a concentrated effort to do something better. And when Coronet kind of burned themselves out, Centron kept cranking out the films and making high quality films. And they were making all sorts of films, not just educational films in the classroom, but they were making films for various corporations and about everything from spark plugs to, you know, <laughs> uh, machine parts and, and films that would be seen by obviously a very small audience, but they made films that were of high quality for the type of film they were making. And so, yeah, there's probably, I think, five or six of those films that are included, one of which is, is about the state of Kansas. It's called Star 54, which I haven't seen yet, but uh, has some clips of things that I'm familiar with, like the geographical center of the United States is in Kansas and a thing called Rock City. So I, I saw those clips. And I'm like, I've got to see this film now because I've been to these places. Not too many people can say they've been to the geographical center of the United States. I have. I wouldn't count it as one of my biggest accomplishments, but it's uh, <laughs> it's. it's with Centron films being located here in Kansas, obviously they used local, you know, local talent. They used 
locations and it's fun to see some of these things now and compare to see how they were 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. You know, some of the locations, the film was partially filmed in Lawrence and, and partially filmed in Utah, which is, I guess, is really where the foundation of this film came about because Herc Harvey was on a vacation with his family and he happened to stumble upon the salt air complex, I guess you could call it, the resort and thought this would be a really cool location for a film and shared that with John Clifford. John Clifford wrote a script and the next thing you know, they've got a film, you know, they raised $13,000 over a weekend and Hey, we've got two weeks to make this film. Let's, let's make it happen. You know, so they filmed part of it in Kansas and then, you know, obviously the location shots were, were done there at the, uh, at the resort. Did you watch the documentary on the resort at all? Did you have a chance to catch the the history behind Salt Air, which is mind-bogglingly crazy? <laughs> it's pretty insane. Uh, I did watch the documentary when I first got the Blu-ray. I haven't. I w- my intention was to revisit it before we started recording, and I did not get a chance to. But I did watch it when I first got the blue. I did research beyond because that documentary was 1966, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, the history continues to be crazy on on this place. God love these local people who have had this, this, this wonderful complex and their undying dedication to making sure that no matter how many times this thing floods or burns to the ground, they're going to rebuild it. You know, it was made at the, at the turn of the century, uh, I guess the last century now, burned to the ground in 1925, they rebuilt it. <laughs> burned to the ground in 1951 they rebuilt it and it's this crazy russian architecture i mean it's insane that this building is out in the middle of utah and you know right by this 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 you know, huge lake and it was a, a massive entertainment complex at one point i mean it was attracting celebrities it had a carousel from a world's fair it had you know roller coasters and and the whole nine yards, and they had train tracks dedicated to bringing people out by the hundreds to this location. I think it was by the 1950s. I mean, it was averaging like 200,000 people uh, a year visiting this place. I mean, this was a major attraction. They renovated it in '54, and then the water recedes in the mid 1950s. So now this lakeside resort. Is literally in the middle of a desert. The water recedes by by several miles, and uh, it ends up getting shut down in 1959. The owners give it to the state of Utah. Obviously, when this was filmed, 1961, it was in a state of disrepair, but still usable in the sense that you could you could film there without concern of your of your you know life falling through a board or something like that. By the time they did the documentary in 66, it was clearly in a bigger state of disrepair. Now, I did some research after that, and believe it or not, it had another fire in 1970, <laughs> burned to the ground again, and God love these people, they rebuilt it again in 1983, and then the water rises, and it floods it out. Oh, man. It's underwater now. So it gets swallowed up by the lake in 1984. So then the waters recede again. So clearly this is not a good location for this, but the waters recede again. And, hey, let's go ahead and restore it. And so they have since restored it again. And then the waters started to recede again. 
And so now they've restored it. And now it, it, once again, it's in the middle of a desert, the water, you know, this waterfront property, once again, the, it's miles away. And it has been restored again after being shut down in 2005. So just 11 years ago, it got restored. And I've lost track how many times it got restored. And actually, they still occasionally do shows at this rebuilt version of it. It's insane that they continue to do this. And then the fact that the waters rise, recede and stuff, it's, they continue to build it because it's their claim to fame. And despite the fact that they're not getting 200,000 people a year to attend, and it's nothing like it once was, it's an incredibly unique. And what we witness in this film is, is technically not the original version. We're actually witnessing the third version of, I think, eventually, what, five or six versions of this, this same salt air complex. So we're seeing the third version of it, which more closely resembles the original salt air resort than I think the most recent version does, which has been a bit more modernized. It has kind of the same feel, but in the movie, it's just a fantastic location to, to set the film. And, it, and, and the fact that when they were filming it, it still had power to it which they were surprised that it had power. And so when they were filming it and they turn on the lights, people who live on the lake all of a sudden see lights on at this abandoned resort and start calling the police. The police, of course, have no clue that something's going on out there. So the police go rushing during the filmmaking process and find out, oh, it's just filmmakers. And no one even realized that there was still power to this location that had been abandoned at that point for probably two years. <laughs> Crazy crazy little background about this this iconic piece from this iconic film. I always respond to these guerrilla filmmaking stories. You know, to hear, oh, there's power, let's use it. Let's go, and, you know, and you use a location like that, you get instant production value. You get this instant uh, just creepiness to a movie that you probably they couldn't afford to build something like that. You know, they couldn't have done that. They didn't have the budget for that. But to be able to stumble across something like that, it's got power. They can go and they can fill it with their people with the white face paint. To me, one of the most iconic scenes of the film. It really is. And, and when I was watching this, I immediately had recollections. We had a, an amusement park in Wichita called Joyland. Oh, that's right. You've now, written about this. I have. I have. And it's... it's uh, Nowhere near on the same scale of Assault Air. Joyland never had 200,000 visitors, but Joyland was built in the 50s. It is certainly a very different era. And, you know, it had a, a couple of iconic things that were part of this park. Um, it had a train that dated back to the 1930s. It had a roller coaster, a wooden roller coaster, which was small in comparison to roller coasters now, but hugely popular in the 50s. And it had a, a, a spook house, a dark house called the Wacky Shack. Uh, I forget the gentleman who, who built it, but he was well known for building these amusement park dark rides. Joyland was hugely successful in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And, and by the 80s and 90s, it started to fall into disrepair a little bit. When Joyland finally shut down, it was uh, really the owners had been the owners for decades and couldn't run the park anymore. And uh, it, it was amazing to see how quickly things can dilapidate when they're not being taken care of. When you're watching that documentary for this one, the, you know, Saltair, the documentary was made in 66. So five years after what we're seeing in this movie, and you can see just how dilapidated this, this park had become in just five years time. And Joyland suffered the same fate. It was just, you know, Joyland was finally tore down last year after being vacant for, for a decade. 
And it suffered the same fate. I mean, Joyland had vandalism, broken windows. It had, I don't know, four or five fires broke out. Uh, homeless people living there, random fires breaking out. The park just kept burning to the ground. And yet there was still a hope of local people in Wichita that this, somehow this park was going to be restored. Uh, and I think if anybody would seen some of the videos out there that people had, had snuck into the park and taken, it's like you knew, yeah, there's there's nothing left of this park. And finally, finally, I think they had one fire too many. And someone said this has become you know a serious hazard to anyone in the neighborhood and finally made the decision that, okay, it's time to shut this park down. Thankfully, the owners were able to save some pieces of the park, uh, including a carousel. Uh, they had removed that from the park and put it into to storage. And uh, I couldn't find anything out. I was curious, the carousel that we you know see very briefly in this, in this film, uh, the documentary had it. I was curious if they somehow were able to save that or if it ended up burning to the ground because it was from a World's Fair, so it was kind of a, an important piece. Uh, I fear that it was just kind of left there and, and probably ended up you know, burning down, probably in the fire of 1970. But it, I saw a lot of similarities and, and the love of the people locally, I guess, in Wichita to try to restore this iconic piece that ultimately time just took away from them. So that's probably some of the same mentality for the people near this, this salt air complex, that there was a history there and they wanted to preserve history. And unfortunately, uh, Mother Nature and, and the uh, the ever receding and rising lake uh, had other plans in mind. And this is one of those things that I like about these movies too, these older movies that we watch from Monster Kid Radio or other podcasts, that sort of thing, is you get to see what some of these structures, what some of these buildings were like. We were talking before we started recording about what some of the Centron facilities look like today versus what are even is in the documentaries on the Blu-ray. I mean, you get to see some of this retro, is it fair to call it retro? I guess historical footage, whether it's in a documentary about oh, something yeah. or an industrial film or a, a piece of fiction like this, you get to see some of these things that just don't exist anymore. And that's something that I always, that I've, found over the years that I respond to very well. Oh, absolutely. I, I love watching these movies yeah. just for that sometimes. Again, one of the documentaries on the Blu-ray talks about, they were showing comparisons. You know, there was the, some of the, the, the early part of the film, the film starts off and I guess we really haven't even talked about what the film is, it, you know, in its core is that you've got a, uh, basically two cars starting off and they're, and they're drag racing and it's kind of through the countryside but actually, that was part of Lawrence. That was part of, you know, the city of Lawrence. Okay. 1961, Kansas was still very rural in a lot of ways. And, of course, now that's all been paved and it's part of the city and you can't even recognize what it looks like now. But then it had a very rural feel to it. And you've got basically a, a car of guys and a car of girls. And the car with the girls ends up going off the side of a bridge. And the one character eventually emerges, and that's the main character of Mary Henry, played by Candace Illigos. And what follows then is, is, is her journey of accepting a job to be an organist out in Utah. And she, throughout the film, is seeing the man, the dead man character, who's actually played by Herc Harvey. And very simple makeup, but very reminiscent, again, as we said, of Night of the Living Dead. And she continues to see him as she continues to kind of spiral out of control. And there's a lot of, you know, there's, there is the twist at the end. And I don't know, do we want to talk about the twist or do we want to avoid that for anyone who hasn't seen the film? Yeah, we have to talk about it because I feel like that's, it's, it's the crux. 
what I hang the movie on, why I find it so fascinating. Yeah. Well, not why, but it's the culmination of what I find so fascinating about it. So I'll make sure there's a you know, spoiler warning at the beginning of this in the yeah. show notes. But yeah, the twist. The, the twist is amazing. And, and you look back and, and there are things that Herc Harvey did to give you hints that something is not right here. There's a couple of moments during the film where she essentially loses the ability to hear or be seen by anybody. She's at a clothing store. She's getting a dress. She's and she all of a sudden she starts hearing. She stops hearing the noises, and all of a sudden she can't be seen. She can't be heard, and she doesn't hear anything. And right when that sequence starts, you get this ripple effect. To me, that symbolized the water because her character, of course, was in the car mm-hmm. and and was in into the lake, and so. When you're under the water, what do you hear? You don't hear anything. You don't hear any sounds. And I think there, that was that was symbolic of the fact that this character really is in this this otherworldly state because in reality, the real Mary Henry ends up still being in the car the whole time. She died in the car. She didn't rise out of the lake in a way that really, I mean, you know this if you think about it, the beginning of the film because it's been hours, right? They haven't found the car. All of a sudden, she comes out of the lake. There's no way that someone would have survived that way. But it's a horror movie, so you just kind of overlook that, and you think, well, maybe she was just floating downstream or something. You don't really see that part of it, so there's not a definitive, well, was she really in the water, or was she just rising out of the water? And so there's these little hints throughout the, this this movie that she's not really alive. She's in this in-between state. And the dead man, of course, and then, of course, the other dead people that continue to pop up, you know, are obviously symbolic of, of the other world, whether she's, you know, passed away or whatever, trying to, to lure her in, trying to, to cross over to the other side, Carol Ann, you know, trying to, <laughs> to, to go to the other side. There's a talk of, of, of a bit of folklore or legend or what have you about how when someone passes away, that they're confronted with what appears to be demons and they've got to fight their way through the demons to get to the other side and then the demons actually become angels and it's kind of like a, a part of the crossing over. I had never heard that bizarre little story, but which kind of makes a very frightening prospect of dying. you got to fight through the demons to get to the other side and ends up being angels. So I don't know, that's bizarre. But, yeah. <laughs> but you can see that, I guess, in, the, in this film a little bit, that there is certainly some elements of that. And, and so when she has these moments and the ripple effect, you know, and she doesn't hear anything, and then she hears a bird, and that kind of snaps her back into what we think is reality. But in, in effect, she's just still in this otherworldly state. She's in the process of crossing over to the other side. She's in the process of dying, so to speak. And and what she's encountering is whether they're the dead or what have you, you know, they're they're basically wanting her to come to the other side and continue to I guess to pass away or, or you know, however the whatever however you want to describe it. The the signs were there. It's kinda of like when you watch the sixth sense, you can go back and rewatch it and you can pick up on a lot of things that you didn't see the first time around. Bruce Willis, you know, doesn't talk to, to anybody but the kid. You don't really pick that up the first time you see it. <laughs> yeah. Once you know the twist, it's like, oh, okay, now all this all these little things you didn't see the first time. That's why when you go back and rewatch Carnival of Souls, you pick up on these things that you didn't see the first time. These little effects that, that were done. And I think the fact, again, as we talked about earlier, the fact that these people really weren't actors or actresses. And so some of their bad acting ends up unintentionally adding to this otherworldly effect. You know, you kind of immerse yourself into this world 
ironically, there was a moment, though, that I got pulled out of the movie. And again, this is only somebody locally would pick up on this. One of the documentaries, you know, we're talking about the location shots, mm-hmm. you know, was partially filmed in Kansas, partially filmed in Utah. And the documentary states that the, that the uh, like the gas station, the bus station, you know, was filmed uh, locally, that the doctor's office was actually filmed at the studios, Centron Film Studios, which is now called Old Father Studios on the uh, KU campus, uh, Kansas University, University of Kansas. The bus station, though, for me, I don't think they filmed that in Kansas because I noticed that there was a sign that stated Salt Lake City in the bus station. And so I think that's a mistake on the, on the one documentary. I don't think that the, the bus station would have been filmed in, in Lawrence, at least not the internal shot, because there would have been no reason. To, I don't think they would have gone through the effort to put up a sign that said Salt Lake City, because when they were at the gas station, there were two things that gave away that it was filmed in Kansas, and they didn't go through the effort of removing those from the film. In the front of the gas station, it's called Lawrence Tire, oh, okay. Lawrence, Kansas. And on the inside of the gas station, there is a a sign for like a local sports broadcaster, and it's WIWTV. That's the CBS affiliate in Topeka, Kansas. Again, the average person's not going to recognize that, but I caught that right away. It's like, yeah, this gas station's not in Utah. Yeah, she's supposed to be in Utah. I was like, no, that's in Kansas. And so I'm fairly certain that since they didn't go through the effort of removing those signs, they probably didn't put up the sign that said Salt Lake City in the in the bus station. And so I'm I'm going to assume that they shot that scene, you know, locally there in Utah as opposed to Kansas. Because I don't think that Lawrence would have had a bus station that would have been that big or grand, even though bus travel was much more common in, in the early sixties, Lawrence, you know, would have been a smaller town. So it wouldn't have had that big of a bus station. It would have had more of a, a smaller, you know, stop. Something like you've seen, you know, in, in, in movies and just a smaller bus station. I don't know. That's just recollections from somebody who lives here in the area. I, you know, I, I, those moments kind of pulled me out of the movie a little bit. Uh, it's like, okay, this isn't really that otherworldly. That's a, that's a Lawrence gas station. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not otherworldly. That's Kansas. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, it, you know, the documentary talks about how, like, a lot of that, like, the gas station and stuff, those are long gone. They've been torn down. But a couple of the things still exist. The um, Reuter Organ Company, now at the time that, that the documentary that was made, the second one was made in 99, it still was located at 612 New Hampshire, and the inside still looked the same. Uh, they were still in the same location and hadn't changed, you know, in, what at that point, 30, 37 years. But they did move to a new location. They're still in Lawrence, but in 2001, they did move to a, a different uh, location. So it does not look the same anymore. Okay. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure that building probably still stands, but uh, they have since moved, and, and that organ has now been relocated to a different location. Now, the church actually is still standing, the Trinity Episcopal Church. And an interesting side note, when they filmed the documentary, they they did film inside the church. They filmed in you know the organ loft, and it looked like exactly the same. They actually don't like people going into the church, though, because that's a part of their past. The church isn't really proud of the fact that they had a horror movie okay. uh, or a thriller, whatever you wish to call it, made in the church. They were not aware of what the movie was when they were filming those scenes, and so they're not really entirely proud of, of the fact that 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 they've got a bit of. Uh, 
of horror film history a little bit. A friend of mine by the name of uh, Jill Sanderson, a.k.a. Gunther Deadman from the Basement Sublet of Horror, lives in Lawrence. And he went to several of the different locations. He went to the Centron Film Studios and filmed the interior and uh, took a lot of you know pictures and shots and stuff inside the film studio and attempted to go to the, the church. And uh, they did not want him to go into the church. They were kind of like, yeah, you, you know, take a picture of the outside, but no, you're not going to, we don't want you taking anything on the inside. So it's interesting at some point from, from the time that documentary was made in 99 to now, they don't want anyone to go in there and, and recognize their, their horror film past. But Centron Film Studio certainly doesn't have a problem because it's still used for student films to an extent. When my friend Joel was in there, there was actually still a lot of stuff present that you could kind of see the the Centron film history was still kind of present, still some some film props and stuff that were lying around in warehouses and stuff that that dated back to the Centron film days. And Centron films had since they've been gone for decades, but there's still some some film history there. But KU is actually kind of shut down their film department. They used to have a huge library of films and uh, ended up getting rid of all that. And thankfully, my friend Joel actually was able to salvage a lot of that, a lot of those educational films and stuff that they had in their collection that they were just virtually going to throw away. He was able to to save at the in the 11th hour and add to his personal collection of films. And a lot of that is what he has used in making uh, The Basement Cellar of Horror. When he did the early seasons of that, he incorporated educational films into classic films and kind of did a, a fun little 60 minute recut of these classic films. And it was using a lot of these educational and kind of quirky films, some of which that he had acquired when KU was shutting down their film department, which dates back to Centron Film Studios. Kind of a, an interesting little bit of history there that ties into the horror genre of today. These educational films, they, they are certainly quirky at times. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things to do, and I think I've talked about this before, is about once a week, I will go through the upcoming week's listings on TCM to see what's going to be playing on Turner Classic Movies. And if there's ever like a little short 20, 30-minute thing that they're showing, I will always check to see if it's one of these educational shorts from the past because they're just fascinating. Sometimes they're fun to laugh at, but they're just fascinating. And I just posted on Facebook that I finally got around to watching a little safety short called One Got Fat. (laughs) Have you seen this? I have not, but I love the title of it. It's a group of kids, but they're all wearing monkey masks, all riding on their bikes down the street to go have a picnic. And along the way, one by one, they keep getting killed because they do something stupid. And at the very end, it's about there's one guy who survives, and he got fat because he got to eat everybody's lunches because everybody else did something terrible on their bikes. <laughs> oh my God. It's awful. It's I mean, but it's it's great, but it's awful. Well, I used to love the fact that this exists. Yeah, you know, and, and somebody we, saved can, it. Can, yeah, and somebody saved it, and somebody made the decision. We're going to put it on the air Tuesday afternoon at one twelve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, rediscover these these little little lost gems that otherwise would have been kind of forgotten, you know, over time. And and, and that's rediscovery, you know, is really mm-hmm. where Carnival of Souls came in. It was rediscovered these art house films, and and all of a sudden, with the advent of of the eighties and nineties, is like the film collecting. I think played another big part of it, as with the arrival of VHS, us monster kids were now getting a little bit older. This us early monster kids 
we wanted to watch these films and some of these films are now getting put on VHS. And so now we could watch them whenever we wanted to. And we were finally discovering these films that we had, had read about, but never had a chance to see and films that we had never even heard of before. You know, there, there was kind of two renaissances that occurred at that time. You had the renaissance of film and, and the discovery of, of these great films. And you had things like mystery science theater that, that, you know, were helping people discover films like Manos, the hands of fate, the film, you know, these films that, that all of a sudden were getting resurfaced and, and getting recognized. And, and the music though, it, it was another thing that I, I wasn't really aware of, but it made sense when I heard about it. The organ score by Gene Moore in this film adds to the atmosphere of this movie in such an incredible way. It would be an entirely different film if it didn't have an organ score. And you wonder, how can you you carry over a modern film with an organ score from beginning to end? You do. Little things that they did, like the sequence where uh, Mary is, is disrobing. And the ever creepy neighbor is peering through and, and seeing her disrobe. Um, you don't see anything. It's, it's she's wearing a robe. It's all covered up, but it's implied. And the organ ends up playing what sounds like sleazy sax music, uh, but it's actually the organ that's playing. But it, it comes across as, as sleazy sax music, which totally worked for that particular scene. Mm-hmm. You have that really through, throughout the whole movie. Is this the organ score? And that organ music is kind of falls into that 50s, 60s lounge music, exotica music time period, a very unique time of music where you had people like Martin Denny doing some some very unique music, jungle music and things like that. And then as well, you still had the, the crooners like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin that were kind of falling into that realm. And by the 80s, that music had did clearly, 70s and 80s, that music was way out of, of the mainstream, right? No one wanted to listen to that stuff anymore. But in the mid-90s, there was a renaissance of lounge music. There was a revival of it. And all the little quirky things, like organ music, for example, all of a sudden, people started listening to that again as being something very unique and very different. And there's a local show here called the Retro Cocktail Hour that just celebrated its 20th anniversary. And when it launched in Lawrence on uh, Kansas Public Radio, it launched at at the height of that, at the beginning of the revival uh, in the mid-90s of this type of, of unique music. And for 20 years, they've been playing things and they will play, you know, organ music from time to time in their show. It's a great two-hour show that's now picked up on a lot of other public radio stations coast to coast and around the world. And they have also all their shows are on the internet. The gentleman who does that show, Daryl Brogdon also has a love and passion for films. And he does a film series called cinema, a go, go. They play double features about every two months at the Liberty hall theater uh, on mass street in Lawrence and uh, they will play things. Just recently, they played, you know, The Tingler, you know, with Vincent Price. And they will play uh, films like Lost Continent from 1951. And they will do the, this film revival and ties in, of course, music in monster movies has a very strong connection, especially when you get to the 50s and 60s. You know, whether it's even you know farther back than that, you know, with the arrival of sound, you watch... Dracula, it's what Swan Lake is being played, or you watch any of these films, you hear this music and it Mm -hmm. immediately ties you back into the film. Yeah, I can't hear Swan Lake without thinking of Dracula or The Mummy, because it also, you just, and that's not what it was meant for, but 
I mean, I'm a monster kid. Come on. Well, and and the creature from the Black Lagoon, oh, the music. Yeah. When you're watching King Kong versus Godzilla, and all of a sudden you're thinking creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, hey, this, they probably shouldn't have picked this music for this particular scene, you know, because it's so iconic. Where's the creature at? Well, no, I'm not seeing the creature. I'm seeing King Kong and Godzilla. And that's where, you know, Carnival of Souls, the revival was helped in, is that they, this, this, you know, quirky organ music was now getting recognized as part of this revival in the mid nineties of lounge music, uh, and a revival that is going ever stronger now, 20 years later with the, with the vinyl renaissance that we've experienced in the last, really even the last five years, you know, everyone's collecting vinyl now and, and everyone's getting all these great records in the fifties and sixties quirky music that hadn't been available forever much of it never getting cd releases people are now buying these records and listening to this really unique music and when you have a film like carnival of souls comes along that's got organ music it just it helps with the revival and it keeps the movie going now because now people are are being pulled into the movie in new ways some people will be attracted to this movie simply based on the fact of the of the soundtrack and will enjoy the film even more because of of the the quirky organ music that ends up enhancing the film in ways that a regular score never would have been able to accomplish. It's beautiful music. It really is. It, it's atypical. Like you said, it, it, for a monster movie or a horror movie or a genre picture from the fifties and sixties, it doesn't fit, but it's still so affecting and it fits so well and adds this just bizarre element to the proceedings that we're already seeing. I mean, the movie's bizarre already. It's shot weird. It's, it's performed weird. It's edited weird. In, in a good way. And the score is just like that cherry on top. It just holds it all together and, and propels it. You know, because it's organ music and we see her playing an organ in a church, you get the religious overtones from it and what's beyond and, and the afterlife and all these other things. So you get these things sprinkled into the film as well, courtesy of the score. I don't know anything about Gene Moore, the guy who did the music. I looked. I tried to find some things online about him. I, I'm finding nothing. I suppose he did a few other pieces of, of film here and there. But beyond that, I, I, I have nothing on the man. And I'd be curious to know what his story is or his background is. You look at his IMDb credits, and I mean, he he is credited for doing a lot of documentaries and short films. And I'm going to suspect that a lot of these films possibly were made by by Centron films. I mean, you're looking at films like Coffee Break and The Perfect Crime or, you know, uh, <laughs> The Sound of Bells. I'm going to assume that, you know, Modern Football and, and Tornado and, <laughs> and a lot of this stuff. My favorite stuff, I mean, title is The Embryology of the Chick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What? Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you have to assume that, that, that some of these films, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling up Embryology of the Chick right now. And yeah, uh, it was filmed in Kansas City. Uh, and it was made by a company called Calvin Company. So this was not a Centron film, but it was made in, in Kansas City. So he's obviously a local person, mm-hmm. uh, who, who happened to look into, again, just doing composing work for these little odd films that, you know, once they were made and, and shown once, you know, to whatever audience they were made for, were probably forgotten. You know, he passed away in 98. So again, I'm thankful that we had that documentary made in 89 so that we were able to get interviews with these people. So many of the movies that we love, the revival and love for these films came long after, you know, uh, the stars passed away. Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, even to an extent like Peter Cushing, you know, didn't survive really into the video renaissance of his films, not to where he was, was heavily involved in it. He did, he did some interviews 
you know, in the video era, but, you know, he had fallen into bad health and, and didn't really, I don't think, fully experienced entirely the love for his filmography. Christopher Lee did, but Christopher Lee, um, Christopher Lee was Christopher Lee. You know, he, he didn't really <laughs> have a love and passion for films and he certainly didn't want them called horror films. So, so somebody like Christopher Lee was, was just iconic and we loved him, but he would never sit and gush about the films that we loved. He just wasn't that way. I'm thankful that we have, you know, an opportunity to, to, to hear the people who were part of this film before they passed and that they got a chance to see some of the love, you know, for, for their film. Much in the same way as, you know, going back to the start of this conversation, that Tom Leahy never really understood the love that some people had for The Beast in the Beginning of Time, because he was just kind of embarrassed by by this little film but that he did in 65, didn't fully understand that, no, there's an audience out here that would enjoy your film for all of its quirkiness and bad acting and, and horrific ending to that film of, getting killed by a dinosaur bone <laughs> at the end of that film. The caveman character was just goofy as all get out, but we love it because it's good. It was a goofy film, right? It's Carnival of Souls has elevated so many levels above that. I'm thankful that we were able to, to get into the mind. And so I clearly, they, they understood they had something that was special. And I think there was, you could pick up on some of the documentaries. There was a, a certain level of maybe, maybe more so from John Clifford, a little bit of frustration that, it didn't get recognized sooner and didn't lead to bigger and better things. I didn't get that feel from her Carby in the documentaries. I think he was just kind of thankful, you know, all along the way that, Hey, he just seemed like he had a good life. He was happy with what he did and he was very proud of his film and thankful that it was getting recognized. Even if it was, you know, some 20 plus years after it was made, he was just thankful that it was being loved by a, a new generation of, of fans. And also, he, he was able to restore some scenes. He was able to, to partake in, in getting some, some uh, footage batted back to that. He, uh, I know they added, I don't know how many minutes, but they added some, some footage back to the film in the late 80s. I don't think, though, that that's what we see with the, the Criterion version. If I remember correctly, what we're seeing was because the original theatrical version was cut a little bit after its initial premiere um, in Lawrence. And then he restored some of that footage, but I don't think they incorporated that footage in the Blu-ray because it wasn't good enough quality. So I think what we see is the shorter version, which is shorter by, I think, by about maybe four or five minutes. They do include uh, some outtakes and some deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. And I don't necessarily feel that the deleted scenes added to anything. It didn't seem like there was anything, any big revelation that was made. I actually saw a couple of scenes in the outtakes. That's an interesting, basically 30 minutes of outtakes. And a lot of it was just clips of scenes before and after they said action and cut. Uh, but it does give you an idea for how certain so shots were set up. But uh, And, of course, you've got the great organ music by Gene Morris playing as you're watching this 30 minutes of footage. There was actually a couple of scenes in that of, of the dead uh, and certainly under the pier that I, I thought was really cool and, 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 and amazing shots that should have been incorporated into the film. I think this may have been some of the footage that was lost. There was an entire reel of footage that was lost because of the handling of, of the processing of the film. It was botched up. And so they lost essentially eight minutes of footage. And Herc Harvey said that it wasn't really anything that, that hurt the film. 
but that there was actually a lot of great shots at the pier. And I think some of that might be in some of these outtake scenes because there were several shots of, of the dead underneath the pier and crawling underneath the pier that I think would have been amazing to have in the movie that we ended up not getting. And I think that may have been some of the lost footage in that reel that ended up getting destroyed inadvertently. It's a shame because I, I would have loved to have seen more of the dead walking around. I mean, what we have is great. And, you know, I keep going back to what they did at the Saltair. I mean, that's just amazing. But to have them underneath the pier, like you said, that would be great to see. I mean, I'm sure it was shot well. I'm sure it was creepy as all get out. Yeah, it was, it was funny too. Yeah. That, that, you know, there was one of the creepiest scenes is where you see the dead rising out of the water. Yes. They kind of spoiled a little bit in the documentary that that was actually filmed in a pool in someone's backyard in Lawrence. Oh, really? Nice. <laughs> yeah. It was, you had this grand vision that they, they would have found some water somewhere. But, you know, interestingly enough that, that, of course, at this point, salt air wasn't even close to the water. But then you have these sequences of them rising out of the water, which, of course, the water was miles the other direction. Yeah, it ends up being just in the backyard, someone's pool in Lawrence. So uh, a little bit of Hollywood magic there. Sometimes you, sometimes you don't want to know these things because then the next time you see that scene, it's like, yeah, that's just a pool. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the lake. <laughs> you know, for me, though, that enhances it, though. I, I like to know these it, things. It does normally for yeah, me. But- yeah, it does. It, it, you see these things, and it's like I, you know, I loved noticing the WIBW sign and Lawrence tires. Like even though it pulled me out of the moment, I was like, okay, that's kind of cool, you know, that I, I see these things that I recognize that most other people aren't going to pick up, mm-hmm. you know. But because I live in this area, it was like that was some of the the fun of watching the Beast in the Beginning of Time. There were certain things in that film that I saw that I recognized, you know. Part of that, there's certainly decades later, part of that with you know Wichita is gone. But, you know, I was there was a scene of the airport, which was the old airport, had been closed long before I lived in Wichita. But I had been to that old airport because now it's a museum. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the tower. And I was I was actually up in that tower because now it's a museum. And so you see some of these things and it just kind of, it does enhance the viewing when you see little things like that, that uh, or, you know, some of the magic behind it. It, it. it may pull you out of the moment, but it does enhance the viewing. It does. It makes it that much more fun when you kind of know how certain things were done or recognize certain things and you know that well that's not really this it's actually this and it's it's fun to know and it's fun to you know certain location shots and stuff like that you can you know i haven't been to the trinity episcopal church but i have a desire now to at least drive by it if there's any way i could possibly go in and go up to that organ loft Without getting arrested or without having a minister start screaming profane at me, I'm going to probably try to do that. Um, can I can actually probably pull this off without getting arrested because I, I did join the Episcopal Church at one point. I was Episcopalian at one point um, before I, I kind of detached myself from that. But, I, you know, I, I can go ahead and and, uh, and do that for, for the sake of Monster Movie Kid. I might, I might have to pull that Uh-oh. off. Uh-oh. <laughs> but if all of a sudden, if all of a sudden, if you don't see anything getting posted to Monster Movie Kit, I would appreciate uh, if you go to my GoFundMe campaign and uh, support my bail money. Uh, that that would be much appreciated. Uh, I'll send you a link when that happens. All right, keep us posted, man. Keep us. I'll give you my cell number just in case. All right. <laughs> uh, it, it, this there's a there's a fun little thing on the other side of Lawrence. Um, again, within the close proximity of where I am. There was actually a town called Stull, Kansas. Stull, Kansas, at one point, was notorious for being known as one of the legendary seven gateways to hell. What? <laughs> yes. In Kansas. 
Yeah, in Kansas, of all places. It's approximately... I would say it's approximately 40 minutes from where I live. Uh, it's on the old highway connecting Lawrence to Topeka, so it's not a highway that is commonly used now. But it's still there. Stull, Kansas, at one point in the 80s. And it's a creepy little, sleepy little town. You know, you drive through, you never see anybody there, right? And it had a cemetery up on a hill. And right next to the cemetery was the remains of a burned-out stone church. And somebody somewhere along the way said, hey, you know, so teenagers would go into this church and they came up with this brilliant idea that there was like a staircase behind this church that had kind of gotten buried in the dirt or whatever. And someone said, well, that must be the gateway to hell. And so stories and folklore and stuff came up and there's this crooked old tree. I mean, it's a creepy location, or I should say was. And people just added to the folklore. Well, the old witch was hung on that creepy old tree over there and um, all of a sudden, it, it, it started making the newspapers and, and talks of that, you know, Stull, Kansas was a place of witchcraft. And, and, well, when the Pope flew over Kansas, he avoided Stull, Kansas, because the Pope can't fly over, you know, unholy ground. <laughs> I, I know. All these stories are real. It's absolutely amazing. I would drive through Stull, Kansas every day for work many years ago in the 80s during the fall months when it was cloudy and cold. And I will admit, it's a creepy little town. It got to the point, though, where if you got out of your car and went into the cemetery, the locals would actually call the authorities and they would be on you in a heartbeat. There is nothing there now. They closed off the cemetery, so you can only get in there by appointment, and they tore down the church and actually tore down the tree. But Stull, Kansas, do a little bit of history. This is totally sidetracked from Carnival of Souls, but it just made me think about these crazy little locations that are just real close to me. At one point, yes, I was 40 minutes away from the gateway to hell. So... uh, Wow. A little bit of a little bit of footnote history here in Kansas. Did you didn't you, something you didn't know? I'm glad you survived. I'm glad you didn't uh, find your way to it. Yes, the old GI Joe uh, infomercials. You know, was it the more you know or something like that? <laughs> knowing to, is half the battle. Yes, knowing is half the battle. There you go. Well, knowing is half the battle. That you know, now that you know where the gateway to hell is, you can avoid it. So that's right. Be like the Pope and don't fly over it. Apparently, apparently, <laughs> I how I would love to be the person who started this story. You know, decades ago, somebody came up with this brilliant idea and it just snowballed. They're, they're probably sitting somewhere laughing all the way. You know, it's just like, yeah, I came up with that story. It's just it's a sleepy little, creepy little town that did have a creepy little cemetery and a creepy old burned out church that all of a sudden became legendary. So. Nice. Actually, I think there was movies. I think there was actually a movie made about Stall, Kansas. Believe it or not. Uh, I'm surprised that they've never mentioned this on Supernatural, which takes place partially in Kansas. The Winchesters have never gone to Stull, and and I think that's that's something they they need to correct that. I think that would be funny. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Oh uh, no, that's fine. That's <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, so Carnival of Souls, it is out on Blu-ray now. It's got the Monster Kid Radio and, I'm assuming, the Monster Movie Kid seal of approval. Oh, absolutely. It is something that you've got to have. It looks so good. It sounds great. It's packed full of extra features. Like I said, I haven't gotten through all of them yet. sounds like you've gotten through more than I have. And, uh, I mean, we both sign off on this thing. People need to have this. It's a great, memorable film, and it, it hasn't looked better as far as I'm concerned. 
Criteria knows what they're doing when they when they put out yeah. a release. I mean, even a film that sometimes they've got a few more bare bone releases, you know, um, and don't have as much documentary footage. You're always going to get at least one or two good documentaries, or you know, and this one is actually chock full of documentaries and and audio essays and you know extra short you know clips from Centron Films Library. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot on here, hours worth of extra features to dive into. And in this day and age. I know we don't all have the time to to make it through all the extras on every single DVD and Blu-ray we get. I know I don't, at least. This is one of those that you do want to take time with. Anytime Criterion puts something out, take the time and effort to set aside a couple hours for the movie, you know, a couple of hours, if not more, for the extras, and just work your way through all the extras. You'll, you'll be glad you did. If you don't have a love and appreciation for this movie going into it, I guarantee you will when you come out the other end. The monster movie kid speaks truth. Listen to Rich. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so I mentioned at the very beginning of this, you're one of the newest writers for Boom Howdy, which is a, a media website, movies, TV, not not specifically genre, but you're there. People can find him there. Uh, lots of news and reviews. I think they have some podcasts, too. I don't think I've heard any of them. I should check some of that out. But that's at BoomHowdy.com. And you've started posting things there now, haven't you? I have. I have. Uh, one of the listeners of Monster Kid Radio, uh, Jeff Owens, giving a shout out to Jeff. He and I actually met on Facebook because of, of the podcast that we love and listen to and our love for, for movies. And I saw a post that he did and saw that, hey, this guy's in Kansas City. So I reached out to him and confirmed that, yeah, we actually live in the same place. Yeah, Jeff and I are friends now. We get together for movies and, and grab a bite to eat when we go see these films. And We've, we've had uh, a lot of great fun. We've gone to see revival films. And in fact, we're going to see Gremlins. The 13th of December, uh, our local Alamo Draft House is playing Gremlins for the holidays. And with your ticket purchase, you get a little ceramic tiki mug uh, in the shape of a gremlin, which uh, was worth the price of admission alone, as far as I was concerned. Yeah. So, Jeff was the one that introduced me to kind of Boom Howdy. He's one of the people behind it. And it's just kind of been part of this diversifying and, and kind of spreading my wings a little bit. I've been doing Monster Movie Kids since 2012, and I love it, and it will continue to be done. Every once in a while, I would see a movie that, that wasn't in the genre that I wanted to write about. And I could if I wanted to, but it didn't seem to fit for Monster Movie Kids. So uh, there is something coming in the next month or so, and I will, I'll give a little sneak preview because I'm not sure when this podcast will, will air, but... Uh, in January, I'm going to be launching a, a new site called Kansas City Cinephile. I'll, I'll certainly hype it up when it when it goes live. And Monster Movie Kid is not going anywhere, but Kansas City Cinephile will be where I will I will post uh, reviews for more mainstream films, more contemporary films. When anything is posted on Monster Movie Kid, it'll be both places. So the Monster Movie reviews are still coming; they're not going to go anywhere. But you're just going to see some different things from me, kind of doing some more contemporary films and some films that are a little outside the wheelhouse. And, and uh, uh, for example, in 2017, I'm going to be doing a year of Hitchcock. I'm going to finally pull the trigger and make my way through the entire Alfred Hitchcock filmography. At least that's the plan. Uh, if I get sidetracked somewhere along the way, it may spill into 2018. But 
uh, chronologically, I'm going to go through all the Hitchcock films, and that's uh, some of which don't necessarily fit into a monster movie kid genre because there's certainly some films he did earlier on in his career that are not horror related. But I will be seeing everything that he did that still exists. So I think he's got one movie that has lost one of his early silent films, but uh, I think everything else still exists, and and some of which are a little harder to find. And I've got them all in my collection, so uh, you'll see a connection between Monster Movie Kid and the new site as well. And of course, I'll continue to write for Boom Howdy as well and and uh, hopefully continue to work with Basement Sublet of Horror and, and we'll see what happens with that in 2017. And then occasionally you'll hear uh, hear my voice pop up on things like uh, Monster Kid Radio. You mentioned the Basement Sublet of Horror magazine holding in my hand right now, Richard Chamberlain's Guide to the Films of Boris Karloff. Cool little magazine and something I wanted to comment on before I let you go. Very last page, your top 10 favorite Boris Karloff films, your number 10 pick, Rich. Would you like to come back to Monster Kid Radio to talk about the booking man we'll get you? Absolutely. Yes, Fantastic. absolutely. You know, with any top 10 list, you know, it's going to change from day to day. Uh, so you always, I'm always reluctant to do any type of list like that. But I've been asked by, uh, by one of the, the mm. readers when I was doing the, the Boris Karloff, uh, as part of my, uh, uh, 31 days of Halloween back in 2014. Um, one of the uh, monster kids amongst the rest of us, Barry Harding said, you know, you should do a top 10. What's your top 10? So I went ahead and, and said, okay, I'll do that. So I, I, I created a top 10 and, uh, it's so hard to pick one, you know, one film of it ever, especially when you're talking with somebody like a Boris Karloff or a Bela Lugosi. But, uh, that's a quirky film that I think gets overlooked. Um, it doesn't get enough love and it wasn't available for a long time, which is I think part of the reason why sometimes it gets forgotten. And I remember discovering that movie randomly on a Sunday afternoon, just turning on the TV and there it was at two o'clock in the afternoon. And ever since then I'd been in love with that film and I hadn't seen it for so long when I finally got it on, on when it was part of the DVD set, you know, many years ago. And, and yes, absolutely. All you, all you need to do, sir, is, is tell me where and when, and I will be there. Excellent. I think it's an underrated gem. So when I saw it on your list, I got really excited. It's like, yeah, I can talk about that movie with somebody. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, I'll pencil you in, man. We'll be in touch when it could happen. Sounds fantastic. MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. That's Rich's original site when he first became the Monster Movie Kid. Great blog. There's a link to it in our link section over at MonsterKidRadio.net. His new project, Kansas City Cinephiles, over at KC Cinephile. Dot com And then he and Jeff Owens of the Classic Horrors Club over at ClassicHorrors.club launched the podcast Classic Horrors Club. Episode one is out now. It's all about the 1976 King Kong. It's part of the Phantom Podcast Network. You can also get to it through links over at KC Cinephile and the Classic Horrors Club. So go check that out and let them know that you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. I've been talking to Rich and Jeff, and I'd love to have them both on the show for a tag team of some sort, talking about some movie. Don't know what yet. I've got some ideas, and I'll be reaching out to them here in the near future to set that up and make it happen. Thanks again, Rich. Blood-chilling science fiction shockers, Island of the Burning Damned, and Godzilla's Revenge. In this quiet setting, a tale of prehistoric horror is about to unfold with a science-battling awakening of long-gone giants. Fighting amongst each other for the conquest of our planet. 
see the giant spiders spin their web of fear around their enemy. Godzilla's revenge knows no limit. No end. No stopping. See man's last attempt at saving humanity from destruction. And Godzilla's revenge. on the same shot-filled program, Island of the Burning Dam. What is that strange noise and burning white heat that drove people to their death? I have been convinced that this island has become the center of an invasion, the central landing point for beings from another planet. What happens when an unknown power from outer space uses our radar signals as life-saving beacons to bring it to Earth to consume our energy? Island of the Burning Damned, an island desperate for help. Christopher, what insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but... There are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show? Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at OrphanEntertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Rocket into outer space with the heroic astronauts daring to explore beyond the moon, beyond the outer limits of human adventure, beyond the barrier of human credibility. Fighting the unknown forces and secret terrors science couldn't predict. There's a monstrous thing aboard this station from the moon. That's what killed Weber. What kind of a monstrous thing? <coughs> Discover the monstrous horror from the moon, threatening to destroy everything it touches. The fiendish force that ignited the loves, the hates, the passions of the explorers in space. Oh, Gordon, I miss you so much. So lonely out here. All these men around? Don't tease me, not now. The awesome adventure of the astronauts of Space Station X-7. The journey that controlled the destiny of the world. Suppose that Space Station gets out of control. Suppose it plunges toward Earth, carrying that deadly thing with it. Well, it should burn up when it hits the atmosphere. Yes, it should, but suppose one tiny fragment didn't. Space Age 
drama from tomorrow's headlines. The suspense, the drama, the terror of human beings facing a fiendish monster from the moon. Too incredible to believe, too gigantic to control, too mysterious for man to comprehend. This is mutiny. Mutiny in outer space. Before we wrap up, I want to send uh, my condolences out to the friends and family of Francine York. Francine York was a friend of Dave Schechter, who was just on the show. He's been working on her memoirs with her. And it was through his Facebook post that I learned that she had passed on. And I know it's impacted him, rightly so, and all of her other fans, friends, and family. And... You know, I got to tell you, listeners, I actually had a chance to meet her, and I'm kind of kicking myself now for having not done so. This is something that Dave mentioned when I had him on last week when we were talking about what's happening to Monster Kid Dumb, these classic monster movies. It's getting harder and harder to see them continue into new media and find new fans in the new generations because, well, I mean, they're older films, and the people that were involved in these films, the fans of these films, the original fans, they're leaving us and i mean that happens age catches up with us all and ultimately you know that's that a few years ago francine york was a guest at the rose city comic con which is a comic con here in portland oregon and i go to this thing uh, every year i've been going for years now with my friend tom doffel who's been on the show in the past i need to get him back on for some things in the future tom if you're listening i'm coming for you uh, anyway, Tom and I went to a Rose City Comic Con and she was there with, you know, I, I can't remember who it was, but there was somebody else there as well. And it wasn't like she was, you know, part of the big media side of the Comic Con. She had a table set up. She was selling some DVDs. She's brought in by another group and, and, you know, she was great. I chatted with her for a couple of minutes and then I always meant to go back with my recorder, introduce myself, maybe chat with her for a few minutes, get her on the show and, I just never made that happen, and I'm going to regret that because from what I understand, she was just a sweetheart. I mean, she was really good friends with Dave, and I mean, I trust Dave Schechter's opinion of people. He's a great guy himself, so you know, I just really wish I had had a chance to interact with her, let her know how much I appreciated everything that she's done in this subgenre that we love so much. I mean, she worked with John Agar and Curse of the Swamp People. Say what you want about that movie, but I find a lot of enjoyment in that film, and part of it's because of John Agar, sure, but part of it's because of her as well. And, you know, again, um, I just kind of regret not spending some more time with her. And I would just say that if you ever do have an opportunity to interact with any of these people that were involved in any of these classic films, take the opportunity to do so. I mean, just, just to let them know how much they mean to you, that you love their movies, that you love their work. No, you're not going to walk away with finding a new best friend. And, you know, you're probably not going to have the kind of relationship that Dave had with Francine York. But, you know, it's something. And... You know, if nothing else, you won't be kicking yourself a few years later down the line for not having not spent some time with somebody at a Comic-Con. I know that's kind of a serious note to end the show on, but this is the end of the show. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of, I'm going to say it again, it's starting to get cliched, but I don't care because I mean it. Some of the best podcast listeners in the world. I appreciate each and every one of you. And 
I would love to ask you to come by our website at monsterkidradio.net. This was a terrible segue, but that is where you're going to find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There's links to everything that we talk about here in the show, all of Rich's sites and Jeff's site and their podcast. Links to our Facebook page and our Facebook group. If you are a Facebook user, please consider giving us a like. Feel free to join the group and get into some conversations with listeners over there. I'm thinking about bringing them back to the monthly poll. I used to do a poll there, so maybe in February I'll, I'll roll that back out, but that'll be open to Facebook members only, so that's how you get involved there. There's a link to our Patreon campaign, so if you want to support the show that way, I really appreciate that support. There's links to every song that's appeared here on the show. There's ways for you to subscribe to the show. If this is just a one-time listen for you, you can subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes and a bunch of other podcatchers. Our contact information is there as well. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. If you have anything that you'd like to say about this episode or the previous 301, well, I'd love to include you in a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, I'm excited to get this guy on the show. He's a filmmaker, and I've often wondered about this a lot of times on the show, and I still can't figure out exactly why it is. But there's something about the love of these classic monster movies that seems to motivate people to be creative and to explore making their own media in the vein of this classic stuff. And the man of the arts that I have coming on the show next week is one of those people. His name's Joshua Kennedy. He's a filmmaker. He was recently a film student because he just graduated. Congratulations, Joshua. The graduation present for me is a guest spot on Monster Kid Radio. So I'm going to be talking with him next week. We're going to talk about what he's got coming up. He's got a Kickstarter campaign in the works for his next film. We're also going to talk about his most recent film, which is the Alpha Omega Man. The place. New York City. The time. The not-too-distant future. The last man on Earth. Lives in a fortress. Discovered check. How does that grab you, Chuck? The last man on Earth always carries an automatic weapon. The last man on Earth is hunting. The last man on Earth is not alone. Come in, Joshua Kennedy is Robert Neville. Laura Loreano as Lisa Cash. And Cat Kennedy as Matthias. Is this not the place where all the users of the wheel were taught their evil ways? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ah! 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 Search the corridors! Follow me! Now come on, man, get on the bike. It's pink. Well, I meant to get a motorcycle, but the word on the street is you haven't got your license. Yes, that's true. You're the last man on Earth. Yes, and it pays to be careful. Shut up, man, and get on the bike. The Alpha Omega Man, a gooey film production. He's running out of time, but he's got all the time in the world. The Alpha Omega Man. The last Joshua Kennedy Peace University production. The Alpha Omega Man. For what
mature audiences only. So we'll talk about that and a few other things. He's coming up. I've got future episodes planned with Joe Stuber from Comic Book Central. That's going to be fun to chat with him about a movie that, well, you just have to come back to find out what it is. But it is related to what we do here on MKR, and it's a good one. I've got a number of other episodes in the works as well, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Cachito. That belongs to the band Los Tsunamis, and it is from their album California. You can find them over at lostsunamis.bandcamp.com. Check out the album there and their other albums. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. I will talk to everybody next week. I am Derek M. Cook. Ciao. (laughs) 